It's 4 o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Yahoo! Welcoming our special guest, where is Stephen Baird, and this week we're going to talk about the seven habits of successful media composers. Hello, Steve. How are you, man? Good. How about you? Good. Am I still garbly sounding? You are still garbly sounding. I hope it's not garbly sounding uh, for everybody else, but yes, I'm, I'm yeah. still hearing garbles. All right. Well, I think that that's just a link between us. Hello, everybody in the chat room. Glad to see you guys here. Um, Steve and I are having a little audio problem, but I don't think that it's uh, getting to you guys. Steve Collins says, Steve, the legend. Wow, you're a <laughs> legend. You are a true legend. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I need that. I need that. You need, to, you need to record that and send it to me. I want to use that. <laughs> if we have the highest production values known to the television community. Anyway, I'm really glad he could join us. It's been like probably at least a couple of years since he's been on the show, maybe even longer. Yeah, yeah, e easily, yeah, maybe three years. Okay, and yeah, it's been a while. Uh, yeah yesterday, uh, Stephen and I were testing out the whole, you know, link so that we could see each other, ended up spending an hour catching up and talking. So it was great, even though we're about I don't know, 2,600 miles apart or something like that. Roughly. So uh, I want to set the stage a little bit. Uh, years ago, I, I sent this out in a letter, but not everybody who's going to see this episode is going to see the letter. So I don't know, some years ago, like 12 years ago or more, uh, the Taxi Road Rally, our annual convention, I see this uh, skinny young dude walking around in this like Kermit the Frog green T-shirt. Uh, and it says carries no cash. And uh, we had a room set up, a videographer said, hey, why don't you let me videotape some of your members just walking up in front of the camera and going, hey, my name is John Doe and here's what I'm thinking about the convention or about taxi, whatever. I walk in the room and there's Steve and they're talking and I'm going, this guy's really bright. He, there's something likable about him, something, I don't know, it's just, I kind of feel like he's going to be successful. I literally knew in that instant. And uh, so he came to the road rally and he figured out what his path was going to be. And he made a few friends and he just hunkered down. And now he's in that uh, club of six-figure composers who, let's see, he's in 15 to 20 different music libraries. Um, and I think I asked you this yesterday when we were chatting, but I didn't write it down. How many tracks do you have out there, do you think? Oh, uh, I don't know. Um, it's got to be it's got to be in the thousands by this point, I would say. Okay. It's got to be maybe 1,500, 2,000. It's right. got to be somewhere in that general vicinity, I would say. That seems to be the magic number. Once people get over 1,000, they're making real money. Once they get over 1,500 usually, and they've been doing it for a few years, they start breaking into that loftier income level. Yeah. Um, is it a fair statement to say that your music is probably on TV somewhere in the world every day, maybe even several hours a day? Yeah, yeah, maybe even right now. Yeah, I would say that's <laughs> Well, let's go watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, I was, I was actually, um, I was moving some stuff around. There was a, uh, an ad that, that came up on YouTube, and I was listening to it, and I was like, I'm pretty sure I wrote that. Sure wow. That, <laughs> like that, that happens a good little bit, yeah. 
Sometimes uh, my wife and I are watching, uh, what she, she loves HGTV, all the home decorating shows on HGTV. And every now and then I'll go, oh, I know that cue. That's a taxi cue. So yeah. <laughs> it must be even more gratifying for you considering you wrote it and produced it. Um, so anyway, Steve sent me a letter one day and I was so incredibly moved by this letter that I've, I've literally never forgotten it. And I'm going to read it now because I want to set the stage for this whole conversation. And it, and it relates to one of the seven habits of highly successful media composers. Uh, and it says, hey, Michael, I joined Taxi in September of 2007 with nothing more than Reason 2.5 and an old Roland keyboard from the 1980s. Until yeah. joining Taxi, I knew nothing about the film and TV or advertising market. Actually, I was quite the newbie. Now, nearly five years later, I'm in my second year of making a full-time living writing for TV, TV shows, commercials, promos, and movie trailers. Nearly every penny I've made can be traced back to Taxi, either directly through a forward or indirectly through the people I've met at the Road Rally or on the Taxi Forum. I'm really quite ecstatic with the way things have turned out. Not only am I making as much or more money than most of my friends, but I'm doing so via a career that I've dreamed about since I was a child. If it wasn't for Taxi, I wouldn't have a music career. I can't even imagine what my life would be like right now. So I'd just like to say thank you for offering such a great service to aspiring musicians, composers, artists, and bands. Not just for the opportunities offered through the listings, but for creating such a great environment for musicians to learn and grow. You've definitely changed my life, and for that, I'm forever grateful, Steve. So for that letter, I'm forever grateful because... Um, first of all, yeah, we get nice letters. We get more complaint letters. You know, people, I can't believe you didn't forward that song. You guys wouldn't know a hit if it jumped up and bitch on the butt. But um, the fact that you acknowledge that it, Taxi is more than just submitting to the opportunities. It, it's this whole, like, ecosystem and community yeah. and friends and all these resources. And you got that at a... A pretty early stage i mean you were five years into it but still you know um you got it so thank you man i, I will always cherish this letter uh, it's on my thank wall <laughs> my, my wall of stuff over here along with uh you know christmas cards and uh people that have sent me like their first royalty check stuff like that so thank you no yeah no no thank you no i, I was i was living in essentially you know flyover country i guess you would call it and uh I didn't want to do a band, and uh, there's really I didn't know how I could possibly do music from where I was at. So Taxi kind of gave me that, you know, not kind of, definitely. So yeah, yeah, my my life is way better than I've ever imagined it because of wow. because of signing up, taking taking that leap and, and signing up. You know. How long had you been a member when you came to the first rally? Do you remember? Uh, so I had signed up in September and I couldn't afford to both sign up and go to the, the rally that first year. So I went the next year that I was a member. So I would say, yeah, just over a year, just a little over a year. And you didn't come with a friend. You didn't know anybody or nope. nothing. Just you the people I knew from the forums. Yeah. yeah oh, okay. In, yeah. That, that was about it. You know, but yeah, I never met anybody. People tell me that they make these friendships, virtual friendships on the forum, and then when they get to the rally, it's kind of like going to a family reunion, even though you've never met face-to-face. -face. You, you yeah. know, the, the, the barriers are down. You already are friends with them, and now it's just a physical 
thing as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Um, and the other good thing or cool thing about it was, uh, you know, where I, where I was at, you know, there, it wasn't really like, um, you know, writing music for a living. It's not, it's not like a thing. You know what I mean? So being able to go there and actually meet and talk with people in person, face to face in the flesh that are doing it for a living really right. kind of gives you, you know, some, some jet fuel in your tank to, to go back and, push at it so that that was another thing that i i wasn't really expecting to, to get from it but yeah that yeah like meeting uh, matt hurt for example and actually seeing and talking to somebody that that was doing it like it's it's totally different than just seeing somebody online you know you actually meet the person you know and the people in, in person like wow this is this is a real job you, know, so you can actually do this so yeah that was a big deal i uh it's funny that you mentioned Matt Hurt over the weekend. After you and I hung up yesterday, actually, it, was, it made me think about Matt Hurt. I haven't spoken to him since he left L.A., I don't think. I think maybe we exchanged one email, but, hey, I can have him on the show virtually now, you know? <laughs> yeah, there you go, yeah. Yeah, actually, I, I talked with him uh, just after he um, left L.A. Uh, not, maybe it was, maybe this is like two years ago now. But um, yeah. yeah, Yeah, he seems to be doing well, you know? Enjoying um, the European lifestyle, I guess. <laughs> yeah, traipsing through the mountains with his camera, no doubt. That yeah, yeah. oh yeah. <laughs> I'm always astonished that he can walk through the mountains by himself for like a week, you know, and sleep in a pup tent out there in the mountains. I'd be so afraid of like a bear, you know, yeah, or Charles Manson or whatever. Just... Yeah, I, I mean, for me, I'm, I'd be more afraid of being bored to death, to be honest. But. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the bear would actually, I would, I would welcome the bear. At least that'd be some excitement, you know, I could run from it or I don't know what I would do, but, uh, uh, yeah, it'd be something. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. He, I see his little, his little trips. I'm just like, man, that is <laughs> like, I get it. I appreciate it. It's just, uh, yeah, not, you know, maybe a day I could do like a day or two, you know, like that would be kind of cool. And after that, it's like, are we going to hit the bar? This, this is, this is too much nature for me. Yeah, I said to my wife and I were in the car coming home from picking up some food for dinner last night. And I said, you know, we saw an RV on the 101. I said, I think I want to get an RV. Let's do like a 10-day road trip of the Western states so I can see all those parks that you've seen that I've never seen. Let's get an RV. Um, how does that sound? And she goes, with you? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, she yeah. thinks I wouldn't be that much fun to Trapped in a tin can for 10 days with her. Anyway, all right, so let's get to, um, well, the the first habit of successful people, uh, that letter actually made me think of it, which is showing gratitude, remembering the people that you met on the way up because uh, you could meet them on the way down or they could be a great networking system. But the fact that you, at your very young age, I mean, you're not that old now. Back then, I know approximately how old you were, but you had your act well together to send that letter. I know it's heartfelt. You didn't do it, you know, like, I'm going to butter him up with this letter. You can just... Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> you, you can feel how heartfelt it was coming off the page. But the fact that you sent it, most people would think about it and not do it. So hats off to you for having your act together um, <laughs> and, and have getting... Uh, the, the first of seven habits correct let's talk about uh what do you have for habit number two uh let's see here i think i took some notes oh should we go into uh yeah i guess uh i guess it's somewhat related you know confidence and, and humility uh I, I guess really um 
uh, you like. So actually, this was at a rally, and I uh, hope I don't. I'm not calling this person out too much, but uh, I, I remember I was at a, it was one of the one-on-one -on -one mentor session things, right? And um, the guy sits down, and uh, he immediately says, "Okay, so I don't. Uh, you know, this is one where you know you're listening to the music and you're and all that." And he's like, "Okay, I don't. I don't need any advice on the music." Like, that's good. I'm good there. You know, what I need is for you to tell me how to, you know, get a place or, or whatever it was. And I just remember sitting there thinking, like, like, are you sure about that? <laughs> if that's the case, why am I sitting on this side and you're sitting on that side, you know? And wow. the thing is, is you should all, like, if I was, uh, you know, as, as well as I've done, you know, if I was on the other side of the table from, you know, somebody, you know, somebody that had a lot of album cuts because I really want to do, you know, more album cuts and have, you know, tracks that are, you know, place with artists, you know, all over the world, whether it's here or, you know, overseas or whatever. If I was across from somebody that uh, had a lot of album cuts, like, I would be all ears. You know, I'd be like, you know, what do you think? Listen to the music, you know, what do you think? You know, where am I going wrong here? Where am I going right? Um, because you can always learn. So I, I think... Uh, you you always need to um don't ever think that you, you should have confidence in your ability so don't think that you know you you know your your music sucks and that but you you should always be trying to make it better you know like like always be like okay this is good but how can i make it better even if it's like little things like how can i make the you know the engineer how can i be a better engineer you know how can i make the the drums sound a little bit better here um, how, how can I improve my melodies? You know, how can I, you know, structure the song in a better way? You should always, I think, be looking for that. Even if you're overall happy with the track, you should think, how could it be a little bit better? Now, at some point, you've kind of got to draw a line and be like, okay, this is, you know, it's got to get out there and, and do whatever. But um, I, I think that should always be in your, in your mind. And that, whenever I was first starting out, I was actually never really thinking, um, okay, is you know, how is this going to make, you know, money at this, in this kind of show or how should I do it for this? And I was never thinking like money. I was more thinking along the lines of, uh, I want to write the best track that I can write right now, mm -hmm. you know, and every track that I would do, it would be like, okay, I want to make the best track. I can make this a little bit better than the last one, a little bit better than the last one. And so, on and so, forth. so I think never um, really think that you, you know, know it all, but also don't uh, think that you don't know anything have confidence in your abilities and be realistic and, and really kind of try to, you know, make yourself better. You know? I mean, I think all the, all the, all like, I would say probably all the, the really good songwriters are probably like that. You know, the really good guitar players, they're always trying to, to learn because once you stop trying to learn. Yeah, I think that's true of any endeavor, especially creative ones, but, you know, in, in business and in sports. Always, you know, even Tiger Woods is always trying to refine his game. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm gonna let everybody know that we've got some questions that came in before the show, um, and also we will take questions after we go through this list. So hang on to your questions, write them down so you don't forget them. Um, Okay, let's see. Okay, so your third habit was professionalism. Let's talk about that. Professionalism. Okay, so um, I think that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Uh, the, the obvious is, you know, doing things on, on time and on task, you know. 
yeah. uh, you know, as, as, as much as you can. You know, obviously there's going to be, you know, things that happen, but for the most part, you should, you know, be on time, on task. Uh, but also, I think, um, you know, I know you talk about this with attacks, a lot of people do is don't be too uh, attached to your music. Like if you get a, um, you know, an edit in, don't, mm-hmm. you know, take that personally. You know, don't be like, whoa, whoa, whoa just, just do it. You're like, okay. And just assume that they have their reasons. And even if you like, because there's times that I've gotten edits. Um, usually mo- most edits, actually, I, I do them and, and it ends up making the, the track better. Um, but there's been times when I, I disagree with an edit. But, you know, I don't, you know, freak out about it. It's just like I do it, turn it in, and, and that's that. You know, kind of treat it like a business in, in that way. You know, you don't, um, you know, think about it. I, I think a lot of people think because it's, it's a creative industry that they kind of have carte blanche to do kind of whatever, like the, the, the rules don't apply to them. You know, like, you know, it's like, well, you know, like imagine running a restaurant, you know, you have a customer, you know, that complains about something and you're like, well, yeah, well, you're stupid. <laughs> you know, like, I, mean, I don't want you, I don't want you eating my food anyways. You know, like uh, how I mean, I guess maybe if you're really good, that could work for a little while. But uh, I, I just uh, that's that's not the approach I would take. You know, so I definitely wouldn't take that approach. With, with that would probably just, be know. a French restaurant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry to all my all of my French viewers. France has a, has a reputation for being a little, you know, um, very confident about their cooking. They and are, so they right? should be. Yes, yes, yes. yeah. <laughs> French, French food is awesome. <laughs> no, I, um, I love French food. French wine, too. It's my favorite. <laughs> oh, that's right. You mentioned that yesterday. Yeah. Um, you know, professionalism, uh, looking at it from the side of the purveyors of music, the, uh, the production music libraries, music licensing companies, they've got a couple hundred thousand people at any point in time that would love to have a relationship with them and have their music in their catalog. So not only are they going to gravitate to the people that can produce the best music, the the most usable music, there is a difference. Um, not that usable means that it's inferior somehow, but uh, they're also going to gravitate to people who the word professionalism means that they're easy to work with, that they're reliable, yeah, that um, they're enjoyable to work with, you know, all, all that stuff. So can you think of any examples where, you know, like libraries that you've built a relationship with where they might reach out to you for something special that they need in a hurry because they know that you'll treat it with a good attitude and you'll probably pull their butt out of the fire by delivering something, you know, staying up all night if you have to, to deliver something is, does that stuff happen? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, I can't like, you know, they don't say something like that specifically, but I think the fact that like I've had multiple situations like that where there was a, you know, something maybe like, uh, you know, maybe they're working on something because a lot of that's a, a lot of library owners they they're musicians themselves so you mm-hmm. know it's not like you know they don't they don't know how to write music or play guitar or piano or whatever you know, so, so they'll work on music too for their clients and so there there could be times like maybe they're working on like a theme song or something and they want uh, the client wants um, something in the theme song that that maybe is not really their thing and they've come to me to have them have just kind of like add a few elements here and there that kind of gives them what they're they're looking for so like that kind of thing has definitely happened 
Um, and I've had, you know, stuff like, hey, can you get this to me tomorrow? Yes. Okay. Um, so I've definitely had stuff like that. I, like I said, they, they've never really said that specifically, you know. Right. Um, but just judging by some of the projects and, and things that have come come my way, I'm, I'm guessing that that, that, is, that is kind of what, what they're thinking. You know, like, okay, he can, you know, he's easy to work with. You know, he's on time on task. He's not going to, you know, freak out about anything if, you know, we don't like it or whatever. You know. um, people often ask me about mastering and about levels. And I know this seems like it's off topic, but the truth be told is part of professionalism is giving them the deliverables in a way that they can use them makes their life easier, which is a big part of the game is making their life easier. So what do you personally do? Uh, do you master every track that you create or do you let the libraries do it? Or do the libraries say, could you master this or let me master it? Um, and, and talk to us about levels because I'm sure that you've got that down to some sort of science by this point. So mastering first, then general deliverable uh, levels for deliverables okay so you got really garbly on there so i'm going to Sorry. uh let me maybe make sure that i got uh what the question is so you're asking about um essentially i think you're asking about mastering like whether i master for the the libraries or not and and then what do i look at as far as levels whenever yep. i'm mastering okay uh so most libraries i i do go ahead and master um, for them because they don't a lot of them I don't think they, they send them to uh, a mastering house so I, I, I try to and when I as far as levels I'm not looking at a specific you know like negative point zero three I mean I guess I do I do kind of set I do give a little bit of room on the limiter um, which is I believe negative point zero three dB on the limiter but I don't um, I, I'm essentially trying to make it sound as, as good as I can in the amount of time that I have like I'm not going to be able to to, to get it as as good as like say I would I would like if it was like a, say an artist release I'd probably spend more time on but I, I get it pretty close mm -hmm. and it's just I want it to sound full and loud and just as good as, as possible that's that's kind of what I'm what I'm aiming for um, there are some libraries that do the mastering themselves uh, a lot of the, the the bigger libraries for example will will send out to another mastering house and so they usually will have specific uh, levels that they want and so they'll tell me what that is and then i'll, I'll bounce it out for I'll, uh, now when i submit it i i have it mastered and i, I send it in hot you know sounding good because right. i think there is a psychological thing with people um whether you're you know a musician or not or in the industry or not where uh something that's louder is going to sound better or something that that's just sounds more that's more polished louder fuller whatever you want to however you want to uh describe it I think that if it sounds more like a finished product, they're going to think the song itself or the instrumental, whatever, is is better versus if you were to send it kind of like low levels and kind of flat and not, you know, a polished product. And they'll, it will maybe make them think like, ah, there's something not quite right with this track. Like they, and they might even think it's like a com composition thing and send it back for edits when in reality, if you would have just sent it sounding like, you know, boom, hot polished nice and good then they'll be like oh, okay that's that sounds great so i always when i submit i always submit it sounding good you know sounding like with the you know with the fully mixed mastered and then for the finals 
I will then do whatever uh, it is that they're they're asking me to do as far as, as far as levels go, so that they can send it to their guy to have it mastered. Um, then the ones that don't do that, I, I send it in mastered. Um, yeah, because I, I want it to sound as, as good as possible. I, th I think that is a selling point, having it sound good, whether it's for demo purposes or for uh, you know with the, the final product. I just want to clarify for the audience because uh, Cass McKenty said editors will set the level. Well, of course they do, but when the library puts it in with, you know, 10,000 other tracks or even like 14 tracks of the same genre and the editor is listening through, if you get to number seven and it's considerably lower in volume, it's a turnoff. Yeah, um, yeah. I, it, it, I, the whole thing sounds like it's not as good, even though it yeah. could be the best song, best song of the 14, but if the volume's are low, you know, a lot of, and not everybody, you know, not everybody's that way, but I think in general, you know, like the 80-20 rule, most people are going to look down on that track. And, you know, when the editors, editors are going through this stuff for music surprise or whatever, they're not, they don't have the volume turned all the way down, like it's going to be on TV, you know, like they right. have it up so they can, they can hear. Now, it might end up to where, you know, you can barely hear it because it's so low, but that's not how it's getting picked, you know, it's getting picked at you know, full volume, you know, even if it's just on their laptop, it's still, it's going to be at a volume that, you know, they, they can hear. Um, all right, let's go to uh, number four, uh, the fourth habit of successful composers, which is set a work schedule. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, so the work schedule can be kind of whatever works for you. Um, I'm not saying, you know, you got to wake up at seven and then work until five and then you walk out and go to happy hour or whatever it can be like mine's a really weird schedule but it it is a, a schedule you know i'll wake up you know i'll have my coffee and i might check some emails or whatever and kind of get a, a game plan going and then i'll work for you know two three hours and then i'll uh you know go for a walk and eat come back work another hour and then i'll you know lift weights go for a walk have dinner and then i'll work again so like my day might be like a eight or nine in the morning to like 11 or 12 at night, you know, but there's a lot of breaks in there, but that's work. That's what works for me. Like I like to kind of step away from it and go back. So like I, I will work, you know, during the night, even though technically I could cram all those hours into you know, a nine to five type of period. Uh, for me, it doesn't really work very well. It works better for me to kind of space it out. But if for you, it works better to go nine to five than, than do that. But I think having a schedule is important because Especially no matter what, even if you're not doing music, any kind of self-employed thing, you're working from home. You know, whatever right. it is that you're doing. If you don't, uh, if you don't set your schedule and have like this is my this is my routine, this is what I'm going to stick to. It's really easy to kind of fall out of that, and before you know it, you you spent a month. You know, you've done one track. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you've done practically nothing. So I, I think it's important to have. Um, you know, you can even start like on a weekly basis and say, okay, this is Sunday. What am I going to do this week? What are, what are my goals? I've got this to do and that to do. Is there something else I want to put in there, uh, you know, that's extra or whatever and kind of carve out a time for your extra stuff? Or, is it fair know? to say that you still work an eight hour day minimally, even though you break it up with uh, lifting weights and going for walks and chugging yeah, bottles yeah. of tequila or whatever? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I would. I would say yeah. And then, I mean, there's some days whenever um, you know I I can't do the breaks. You know, there's some days whenever I've I've got you know enough work and the deadline's tight, or there's maybe maybe it's even just one track, but it's a track that's giving me a lot of trouble, and it's due soon. And I will I'll work solid. You know, I'll work eight hours solid. I won't take any breaks. Um, but generally, yeah, I would say it's it's probably a, an eight hour day. You know, 
for and that's that's writing music, that's sending emails, that's uh, doing whatever else it is that that I happen to need to do that has right. something to do with, with with work. So it's not all just writing music, and that's something I, I think I don't think you should do eight hours of writing music. Uh, you kind of get burned out, and you start making some bad decisions, and you know. Uh, so I, I, I don't, I, music is not like making widgets, you know, it's not like something you can just kind of like push through. Sometimes you can, you know, but not all the time. Um, you know, you do have to be creative, whether you're writing for an artist or a TV show or a commercial, like, you know, you have to have some sort of creativity going. And if you're just trying to like slam it like you're, you know, yeah, making pet rocks or whatever. Uh, I, I don't know that you'll get very good results. And also, you'll just kind of start to hate what you do, <laughs> you know? Um, so I don't I don't think you should necessarily do eight hours straight. That's, that's kind of crazy to me. But, uh, you know, unless you're in the zone. There's a, there's times when I do go eight hours straight, you know, especially if it's something I really want to work on. Like maybe it's like kind of an extra side gig that, that I just happen to want to work on. I'll go hours and hours and hours. There's nothing wrong with that either. Um, but uh, yeah, I think in, in general, like a, a, a schedule is at least like a loose, a loose schedule. You know, it doesn't have to. You know, don't you don't have to get on the dry erase board and you know be like, all right, this exact time I need to do this and that or whatever. Unless, unless again, that's it's you know, this is all an individual thing. This is like what works right. for you. You know, some people, you know, they will you know lock themselves in the studio for fourteen hours, you know, drinking tequila and smoking cigarettes or whatever, and, and that worked great for them. For me. Actually, I can't really work and drink at the same time. You know, like it, it doesn't really work out for me very well. But some people, they, they come up with great stuff when they're drunk. So that works for you, <laughs> I guess. Go for it. You know, like, uh, I, I suck when I'm drunk. <laughs> do you work uh, five days, six days, or seven days a week? Um, it kind of depends on the week. Uh, I generally try to take one day to where I'm not really doing any kind of work stuff at all whether it's music or working on the house or whatever. You know, I try to take right. one day where I'm just kind of whatever. Whatever it is I'm going to do, you know, hang out with friends or uh, play video games or whatever it is that I'm... Or, or sometimes actually just playing guitar, you know? Like, that's kind of like an extra thing. You know, it's a fun thing to do coming up. Um, so, yeah, I would say it's generally six days, six days a week. You know, I'm usually... Yeah, Saturday I'll usually take off, and then Sunday I'm kind of back at it. It's lightly you know, not, not a heavy full-on workload, work but I'm usually doing something work-related on Sunday. Um, what's your absolute favorite genre to work in? Do you have one? Oh, my favorite genre to work in is uh, for sure electronic. Um, and it can be any kind of, and the reason why that's my favorite now, I feel like that's kind of the most, the most open one. That's the one where I think you get the most creative with. Um, Obviously, you have certain, you know, rules that kind of make it, you know, electronic music, you know, so it's not like, you know, just like, you know, start beating on a trash can, like, right, that's electronic music. But, you know, like, if I want to, if I, if I'm, if I'm working on a dance track and I want to do some live bass, I can do that, that works, I can do some guitar, that works, and uh, I just, I feel like I can do kind of weird arrangements and it kind of works, you know, like, so, that, so that's my favorite, just because I feel like that's the most, um, open creativity right now. Like I don't feel like you're in in a box with electronic music as much as you are with some of the, the other genres. Um, 
feel like you can be more experimental. And uh, so long as it's kind of catchy and it's, you know, mostly synth driven, like you're, you're kind of, you're technically electronic. So yeah, that, that's, that's probably my favorite thing. And I, I think, you know, like with the way the technology is moving, that's, that's where, you know, you just have the most kind of cutting edge action these days, you know. Um, can you rattle off like the five or six genres that you most commonly work in? For libraries, uh, for library music, um, for sure, electronic is, is one, um, and I guess you can kind of lump pop into there because we're kind of intertwined these days. Uh, and then uh, tension, for sure, is probably the other one. I'd say probably electronic attention are the, are the, the two most requested. Um, then from there, probably like hip hop is another one, uh, and really each one of these actually, there's kind of like so those are those are probably the three most requested. But of those three, there's like little sub genres that uh, you know that, that come off of. But like I would, you know, like you know, like right now I'm working on actually a for a promo over in Europe. It's like a a very epic like sports kind of track, but it's hip hop. But it's it's a very specific kind of uh, I guess niche genre of hip hop. You know, it's it, it's it's kind of its own thing. And it's not like say like Migos or whatever. You know? So so like there's there's probably each one of those. There's probably like at least three different subgenres that I that I kind of work in. But I would say those are the three most. After that, um, get some kind of uh, like guitar based stuff, whether it's like rock or maybe like kind of upbeat, inspirational, or you know, emotional kind of tension stuff. Um, yeah, that's, that's, I guess I can't quite get to five, but those are, those are the three or four most, and there's a bunch of sub-genres amongst those. Um, I guess enough time has elapsed now that you could probably identify the genres that you seem to get the most cuts with or the most placements with. Um, can you offer up, uh, what your most lucrative genre is? Um, I'm trying to think because I haven't I haven't really been combing through my my uh, royalty statements anymore. Like I used to, you know. Now it's just kind of like you know, they come. I'm like, okay, back to work. Um, but, uh, <laughs> they so call that they call that jaded. I remember a time <laughs> a time in your life where you probably ran around the neighborhood with the statement in your hand, going, "Look, everybody, oh, look!" <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, like I photocopy the checks and all that stuff. Like, yeah, you know, like frame them and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Now it's just like, okay, cool. Like um, Steve, Steve Martin in the jerk running around. The new phone books yeah, are here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically, exactly like that. Exactly like that. Um, yeah, I would say it's probably still like I don't know which of these. It's probably I would say definitely the the kind of the dance and the hip hop genres are the, are the ones that I. But that's also you know that's what I do the most of too. So I don't I don't know if I would like if if. if People are wondering, like, what is the most lucrative genre? Like, okay, so those two are the most lucrative to me, but uh, those are also the two that I do the most of. So, yeah. you know, it's not like a per capita thing. You know, maybe per capita the tension is, I don't know, but for sure what I see the most of and what have been my, my, my biggest money makers would probably be. This. But, you know, I've, I've actually made some good money on, uh, on like, funk stuff too. 
and funk, and um, there's been a couple rock tracks that have made quite a bit of money um, in advertisements. So, so as um, a follow-up to that, my observation watching our members over the years, and I've seen more and more libraries asking for stuff that's really simple and sparse. And people like Matt Hurd have said, you know, funny enough, I did this really awesome track, but they keep using the alt mix. It's basically like bass, drums, a guitar, and a keyboard. Do you find that more often than not, the stuff that gets placed is the simpler, more sparse and stripped down stuff? Um, yeah, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to say really with any sort of, uh, certainty, but, um, like, cause yeah, there, there's, there's this one little hip hop track that I did that is super simple. It's basically bass drums and then a little guitar part that I played, which was like that kind of a thing, you know, super simple. And it's all over my statements all the time. Um, and there's a few like that, but then there's also ones like the, the one that I just mentioned that I'm working on that is pretty epic with you know full on like you know tons of like strings and synth act there's tons of stuff going on in this track and that um i did that a little while ago now and that has been used a ton like i made a ton of money off of this track and it is in no way shape or form a, a simple track like it's, it's pretty heavy duty so i, I don't really know um but yeah, there, I, I think the thing is, is, is there's probably more um, opportunities for the more simple stuff. Just if you just look at like what's getting used, because most of the stuff you're going to get used is going to be, or most of the places that your, your music will be used are going to be TV shows. And for the most part, it's usually little kind of sparser stuff for sure. Um, but that doesn't mean that a sparser you know, the, the, it's going to be sparser stuff so um but that doesn't mean that like you know the really big productions don't get used a lot either like i said like i've had big production type stuff that get used a lot and placed in a ton of stuff and made a ton of money um so yeah uh i know that's kind of a non-answer but uh yeah i guess both <laughs> oh you both. should run for office then oh <laughs> uh, yeah i know yeah i'm, I'm thinking about it <laughs> It'd be a lot. Probably might be a lot easier of a job, right? You know, just sit around. <laughs> That's right. You know? Eat a lot of fancy lunches. That uh, yeah, fancy lunches. Yeah. Something um, goes right, I take credit. If something goes wrong, I blame somebody else. That's right. But see, you're perfect. You should absolutely run for office. Yeah. So a few weeks ago, I was talking about um, the eighty twenty rule, and I know that you're very familiar with that as well. And Somebody in the chat room or somebody posted a comment, uh, you know, after the video was, was on YouTube and they said, well, if 80% of your income comes from 20% of your music, why don't you just make 100% of your music like the 20%? And I thought, well, I can see the logic in that question. I had my own personal feelings why that probably doesn't work out, but I want to hear what you think about that. Why, if you know that 80% of the income comes from 20% of a certain type of track, uh, which almost all of my friends who have become successful composers would agree with that more or less. You know, it's not a hard, fast rule, but it's pretty darn close. Why don't you just zero in on the 20% that are the money makers and just do only that? Well, I think the uh, simplest and easy explanation for that is, is you really don't ever know what that 20% is going to be, you know? So, 
uh, yeah, that'd be great. Like, you know, why, why, uh, why didn't you take all your life savings and put it into to Apple? You know, twenty years ago, why didn't you I do did. that? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> best thing yeah, I've so ever done. Yeah, so sometimes, sometimes you nail it. Sometimes, sometimes you don't. It's, it's kind of like a, it's, in a way, it's a hindsight, it's twenty twenty type of thing. I mean, you just, you really just don't ever know. Um, you can right. kind of. You can make some loose predictions, but it's, I mean, it's just like uh, with, with, with a lot of things, you know, like uh, we're talking about stocks, like you can be like, well, these are some loose predictions about what's going to happen in the economy and the market, but you don't really, nobody knows really for sure. So um, that that is really basically why you just don't, you just don't know. Like, it's easy to say that, but, um, you know, like, like I said, whenever I, if, like what we were just talking about, like if I, if I were to look at, at my statements, I don't know that I could see a particular pattern um that i could focus on you know because uh yeah like i've got the simple stuff that makes a ton of money and i got the complicated stuff that makes a ton of money um so i think you just have to uh do the write the best music you can write and also uh diversify as much as you can you know and uh and that's i think that's really really what you gotta, gotta what you gotta do because there's no real prediction or there's no way to predict um you know what's what's going to be used. I mean, sometimes you have like a feeling, like like again, the track that I'm I'm kind of doing some edits for now for a promo. That one, whenever I did that one, I was like, this is awesome, and this is going to get the crap used out of it. That I knew there was a Publix commercial that I worked on, and right after I did it, it was one of the ones where you uh, work through a music house, so you, you have a lot of people competing for it. You know, so you do your right. track. There's like 10, 20 other composers or whatever. And I remember whenever I finished this this track, I was like. Because uh, I had the video, so I was able to score to it, and I was like, "There's no way anybody's beating me on this. I've, I've got this." Note. And I did. So there are some times when you just know, you know, you just know. But yeah. for the most part, you don't really, you know, you say, "Well, this could, or it could not." You know, you never know. So that I guess is the answer to that. <laughs> uh, my observation on that is because. If you get to the point where you're making real money and you're busy all the time, part of your job, part of being a professional is placating and, and satisfying the needs of the different libraries that you're working with. If every time they call you or send you an email saying, hey, I need, you know, uh, like urban tension, you go, no, that hasn't been productive for me. I don't do that anymore. That might be the yeah. last time you ever hear from them. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so sometimes you have to suck it up and give them what they ask for, even though you know it may not be a big money maker for you. you yeah, look yeah, at the big picture. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I get you know I get requests all the time, and uh, it's, it's not really going to be like, well, this is done well or not well, so I'm not going to do it. Especially <laughs> if they've got a budget, you know, if they've got right. like a per track budget, I'm not going to be like, well, you know, no. It's like I'm just going to just write, you know, you write and write and write. All right, let's move on. Let me find my page here. Um, this is a big one. This has been something that has plagued taxi members, and I would venture to guess most musicians out there in the world, which is knowing how to make your music sound contemporary. Um, what do you do toward that end? And that would be um, habit number five. <laughs> yeah. Um Okay, so for me, it's maybe a little bit of a different situation uh, because a lot of the like kind of new cool music that I hear anymore is actually from the music supervisors or 
because like yeah. a lot of the music supervisors are very very like finger on the pulse kind of guy but they know a lot about what is going on and what's kind of going to be the new thing or what they're hoping is they're going to discover as the new thing or whatever but they all um they have a, a pretty good knowledge of, of what's going way better than i do like um, I, I would not be able to have a conversation about music with a lot of music supervisors. That's like, you know, as far as, uh, you know, what's, what's kind of going on that's, that's really cool and, and current. So for me, I actually, I get my stuff from, yeah, the people that I'm, I'm writing music from, to be honest. Uh, now, I do do some kind of, you know, uh, listening on my own. Um, you know, like I'll, you know, I, I'll go through different Spotify playlists. You know, maybe there's a, uh, an artist that I find that I like and I'll see what label they're on and then I'll go to that label's uh, you know, playlist that they might have made on, on Spotify and kind of and listen that way. But yeah, um, just, uh, yeah, I mean, it's so easy now really with Spotify. Just go on Spotify and like look at what the, the top 40 stuff is. Like look at the, you know, the, the different, um, they've got playlists for literally every possible subgenre that you could think of. <laughs> And just go on there and just listen to what's going on, you know, and then compare it to to, to your music. And uh, another thing you can maybe do is, because um, some people do tend to get stuck in their decade, um, which yeah. is which is pretty easy to do. Um, now, for me, like there's like I, I like all kinds of decades, like the ones that I grew up in, the ones that were before me and after me. Um, so I I don't feel like I I get I've never really gotten a, a stuck in. It a decade type of problem that's not really happened with me just because um yeah it's never been that way but uh, i know some people are and um maybe one thing you could do is uh listen to the music that you like in your decade and then listen to some of the new stuff and then try to see if you can find similarities like certain chord progressions and melodic ideas like there's there's i've seen all kinds of videos on youtube where they're they're playing like the newest hit song or whatever and they they like I think there's one that's a Justin Bieber song that he was comparing to uh, like an old Toto song you know, from, from the 80s. I think it was off Toto 4? But anyways, um, yeah, I'm not the biggest Toto fan. But uh, anyways, um, I mean, they're fine. I don't hate them or anything like that. I, just, I, don't, I don't know all their albums or anything. But um, yeah, do something like that. And then maybe if you can see the connection, you know, with the, with the core progressions and the melodies and stuff that maybe you loved growing up, you know, and the stuff that's going on now, and then kind of looking at also what are the differences, like how did they, they bring this into, uh, you know, the, the, the here and now, you know, maybe that can help you kind of break out of the, you know, the, the dreaded, you know, this sounds dated thing. You know? um, do you apply uh, kind of the, the same ethic or the same approach, I guess is a better word, um, to choosing your sounds or choosing the type of reverb or the length of the decay on your reverb or how much compression you use or you don't use. So engineering, is your engineering and production, are your engineering and production affected by you going, oh, listen to what they did on that Demi Lovato song, you know, and it just kind of sticks in your brain and someday you're working on a track that sounds like it could be a track for Demi Lovato and you go, I remember that cool loopy, you know, delay thing they used or whatever, or do you not get that cerebral about it? Oh yeah, no, I, I, I definitely, yeah, whenever I, if I'm listening to that, I, I listen to the whatever kind of engineer tricks that they might be doing. And then maybe I can't necessarily uh, replicate it exactly all the time, but right. it's at least kind of in my mind and I, I think like, you know what, like if I'm working on a track, you know it would be cool with something kind of like that Demi Lovato song where they did this 
in Condole or, or whatever it was, you know. So yeah, absolutely. I'm always kind of listening to, to, to little tricks like that and, and adding them here and there to, to various things. Um, how often do you collaborate? Uh, I remember listening to some of your stuff. Do you ever sing on anything? Because uh, I, I wouldn't know if I heard you sing or not, but I've heard some of your stuff that has vocals on it. So I'm guessing that you either hire people as work for hires or that you collaborate. So can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, I, I am not a singer, actually, at, at all. Uh, for everybody on my mom's side of the family, they can sing really well, actually. I just did not get that gene. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm not a singer. Um, like I'll do like like backup like oohs and ahs and like harmonies and stuff just to kind of like add an extra flavor to it. So it sounds like there's you know like say we want like something that sounds like a, a group of people or whatever or a whole band. Like yeah, I'll do something like that. But as far as lead vocals go, no way. Um, so usually with songs, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll collab. That's actually what I do most of my collaborations on with songs. And uh, I. Um, like even if I uh, could sing, I would I would still probably do that just because I like having um, somebody else's creative brain to kind of bounce ideas off of and, and, and work with. Um, like what I really like to do is actually like uh, if like there's a vocalist that I I like their style, their voice or whatever, I like to see if they have maybe a bunch of like guitar and voice or piano and voice demos, and uh, I'll just like you know I'll have them send them send me you know their, their their demos and i'll just kind of like listen to them and see what i like and uh then i'll i'll produce a song i'll, I'll usually strip out the piano or guitar or whatever and then I'll, I'll produce something around um you know their vocals um and i really like doing that because uh i find number one um it's easier for me to uh like it's it's if i say i start the track and then I have to find a vocalist that fits that track. That's a lot harder for me to do, to find a vocalist that is going to fit the bill for a track. Whereas if the vocalist already has his sound or her sound, you know, and it's it's going great, you know, and it's kind of like their song, so they've got a really good performance because it's they started, you know, with their you know guitar in the bedroom or whatever. And, you know, it's, it's there from start to finish, basically. I've already got a good take. I already know what their voice sounds like. And I've got, because I, I write, I write so many different genres and have so much equipment and uh, you know play so many different instruments. I've got more tools to kind of mold the sound around their voice than somebody that's safe. Because your voice is your voice, and if it just doesn't, if it doesn't fit for the track, it doesn't fit for the, the track. So that's that's how I like to to, to collaborate um, with songs. It's find something that's basically already already there, and then. And then also it like gives me ideas. Like I'll, I'll hear something that they, they did, like you know, the way their melody is or the way their voice is, and it will inspire me to do something that I, if I started from scratch without a voice, I would, probably wouldn't have ever thought to do. Yeah. And then sometimes the vocalists, they, they're little producers too, and they've got some cool ideas that I wouldn't have thought of, and I'll use that and then just kind of produce it up. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my, my uh, approach to collaborating, at least for, for vocals. What percentage of your work in the last five years, I'm not going to, let's not consider the earlier years when you were finding your feet, but once you became established, um, do you lean more towards stuff with vocals or more instrumental? Uh, definitely more instrumental. Um, I've, I've done more vocals than, uh, than I have in the past in the last few years, but it's still mostly instrumental. And, and uh, a big part of that is just that um, a vocal song 
just takes longer to do, you know. And usually, whenever I'm doing a vocal song, I'm 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 treating it as uh, even if I never do release it, you know, as a, something on Spotify. Like I treat it as, all right, I'm writing a song here that I want to hear on the radio, and so I spend extra time on it. And yeah. It just it just takes longer, you know. And I and I think that's that's I think overall that's especially these days that's a, a, a good approach to have because um when you're when you're doing songs uh not always but a lot of times you know you're not necessarily just competing with like guys like me that are you know writing songs but you're competing with like actual bands and artists like actual indie bands and indie artists who are touring and they have a social media and, and like they are 100% they, they've got their whatever their 12 song album or five song EP and 100% of them have gone into that and it is their world and their life and how are you going to compete with that if you're just you know you know in a couple of days slinging a track at you know what I mean like it's yeah. just no comparison um, I think that I've noticed in the last 30 to 45 days something that I've not seen before which is some of the companies that use Taxi as a resource and have used us for years and years, we have a very close and strong relationship with them. Uh, libraries that never ever requested instrumentals, they may have had some just because they stumbled on them from people that did songs for them, but I've noticed that libraries that are thought of as song libraries all of a sudden are starting to ramp up and ask us for quite a few instrumentals. And I was thinking about that over the weekend. I wonder if that portends some change in production styles in the industry. Um, if shows are using less songs and more instrumentals. And then Deb and I were watching, we're on like the last three episodes of Breaking Bad. We're watching, I think, uh, season five, episode 12 last night, I think. Um, and I noticed that there were three instrumental tracks in that episode, and that was already like eight years ago. Yeah. But you would think Breaking Bad, they had a big music budget, especially in the last two or three years of the series run. But yeah, th there were times where they had restaurant scenes and, and there was Mexican music playing, uh, or certainly Latin, probably Mexican, because a lot of the show relates to the Mexican drug cartel. Um, and it was instrumental music, and I just found that to be interesting. Have have you noticed um, any uptick in instrumental requests from libraries, or I guess they know you maybe primarily as an instrumental guy, so the work the, the yeah, requests I, are the same. I mean, I yeah, I've um, I certainly haven't noticed a decrease in uh, requests right. for instrumentals, but I mean, um, increase. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's about about the same um so yeah that's that's an interesting observation i'm not sure what what it was what would be causing me um, I, i'm not either but it's definitely a thing i don't know if it's just you know an anomaly that's happened over the last yeah. month or two or it, if this is yeah. a trend yeah it, but, i mean it, it could be it could be that um you know higher quality uh uh you know fully produced songs are becoming more available from you know, artists that have, you know, that are on an indie label or something like that. And so maybe it's harder for them to compete with, you know, uh, production music songs, maybe. You know, maybe. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, for me, like, I've, 
been about the same every now and then I'll get a vocal request, but for the most part, it is, uh, I've noticed more um, requests for like instrumentals that have maybe like a couple vocal elements, like, you know, like a shout right. or, you know, some oohs and ahs or, or something. Right. Like hey, hey, yeah, words. that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. But it's still basically an instrumental. I think that uh, something I've heard anecdotally from friends of mine who do a lot of music for TV commercials is the ad agencies and their clients who make the products or provide the services um, often ask for songs. They want cool indie band songs or indie pop bands. Um, and, and oftentimes they, you know, they don't care how great the music is. If there were two entities that both had equally great music, one of them was a band that was out touring and has a bit of a name for itself. Um, and the other one is anonymous and could be a one-man band in a studio. The agencies will gravitate oftentimes to the band that's got, you know, even if it's a, a fake band, which there are a lot of those out there now where, you know, they take the band picture and they do the band album cover and they make it like it's a band to make themselves more appealing to ad agencies because ad agencies somehow think that's cooler and want a story involved. But here's the irony of it all, which is so often they take the songs and strip out the vocals and go with an, a, a, an instrumental yeah. mix. Uh, I would say like 80% of the stuff that I'm hearing in commercials now is they take what sounds like a real indie band and strip out the vocals. Yeah, yep, yep, absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I've noticed that that as well and I've, I've had stuff where I've, I've, I've you know it's like I've been a vocal song with you know they just yeah they use the uh, the instrumental they strip out the vocals and they use the instrumental or, you know like the promo or the ad or whatever um, but yeah that that I've, I've heard that before that they they gravitate more towards uh, real bands you know that that's over uh, you know an unknown right um, and, and even if they're know, a not very popular band you know Right. Uh, well, there's always that discovery thing. Earlier, you were talking about music supervisors being so well versed in you know the music that's out there. I've, I'm absolutely certain that music supervisors take tremendous pride in going. Oh yeah, I knew that band a year ago. Just like A and R oh. guys, you know, love to like. I was on it early. There, there's a, like you get a, a badge for you know. Definitely. identifying some obscure band that nobody else knew about a year ago. It doesn't even matter if they suck. You just knew about it a year ago. It's yeah. fine. No, absolutely. That That is 100% true. Uh, actually, I took a, uh, a course when I was in L.A. It was actually a music supervision course. And um, uh, it's a pretty, pretty big-name music supervisor that I was teaching it. And one of the first things was you know talking about like what music supervision is and what it isn't and one of the first things he went over is like our job is not to break bands like you know you're you know that, that it's it so obviously that that is such a kind of a, a big like and he kind of whatever it's like you know everybody wants to you know be the you know that wants to find the next big band or whatever and be able to say that you you know you you know got them their first place in the world he's like but that's not right. our job you know? so it's obviously such an such an issue in the industry that you know he felt like he needed to specifically address that right right off the the top you know um let's go to number six the sixth habit of successful composers which is learn your gear and uh, you know i know that you've been a party to the the phrase that um it's the the ear not the gear and uh 
Matt Hurt was a pretty good example of his studio was laughable, uh, if you were to look at it. Uh, even mm -hmm. he was the one that said to me, come over and see my studio, you'll laugh. Yeah. Um, and look at, at Matt Vanderbo's studio. I mean, there's practically nothing in it, um, yet he does really, really well for himself. So uh, how, how much emphasis do you put on having the latest plugins and having the latest sample libraries, or is it spending a lot of time really getting to know what you do have, which school of thought do you subscribe to? I definitely subscribe more to the, the latter. Like this is actually the first time in my career where I have an actual kind of sort of studio as I'm looking around here. Like this is the first like uh, time I've had a dedicated room to a studio and I have more than just, uh, you know, a computer with a keyboard, some speakers and a guitar and bass, you know. I've got a couple, you know, hardware synthesizers over here and a drum machine and I've got all my guitars hanging up as I'm looking around here. So this is this is the closest to an actual studio I've had, but, you know, for most of that time, yeah, it was pretty basic. I actually, I remember, um, uh, I remember it was on the taxi forums, actually. Uh, people were talking about what, what, uh, what their studios were like, like what they had in them and like how much money they, they had in them. And some of the numbers people were kicking around were like shocking. Like, I'm talking like twenty twenty five thousand $25,000. And uh, at this time, I was doing it full time. This is a while ago now. But I was doing it full time, and I was sitting there thinking, "I'm like, geez." I was like, "I have a laptop with like Logic and Reason, a busted keyboard with like three <laughs> dead keys, and I do this for a living. Like, you know, like that's that's all I have. You know, like you guys have." You know, people are like talking about like ripping their walls out and you know making it soundproof and all this other kind of craziness. <laughs> I'm like, holy moly, guys, just get a corner of a room somewhere and you'll be good to go. Um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, you, you should, you know, there's nothing wrong with, um, like, like I get, I'm getting more sounds and gear now, but that's because, you know, I, I've been doing it for a living for a while and um, I can obviously afford it and it's a tax deduction, <laughs> you know, like, so I, I'm not necessarily against that. What I'm against is, uh, I feel like a lot of people, and everybody, including myself, has fallen prey to this at least once or twice, where they think, uh, let's use mastering for an example, just because that's an easy example. Um, think, okay, I can get, if I just had this new limiter, the new L14000 right. Ultra Maximizer for you know 250 bucks or whatever, then, then my mixes will sound like what? what was on the radio, but that's really not true, you know, so um, I think you should, especially these days, you get so many good plugins with your, your DAWs that it's, it's insane. Um, yeah, learn how to use that stuff. Uh, learn how to use what you have before you start adding stuff. Now, with sounds, I'm a little more, uh, you know, I guess a little, a little more quick to, to grab the new sounds, you know, than say like grabbing some other gear, like a mixing, mixing gear, because yeah, I mean, you know, you need good sounds, you know, so you don't want to use really dated orchestral sounds. Um, you know, you want to have good synth sounds and a lot of them are so cheap now that it's really not that, that big of a deal to, right. to, to pick those up. It's not like, you know, you're going to be, you know, 
you know, getting a second mortgage on your house to get a new loop pack <laughs> or something, you know, like things are so cheap these days. Um, so I think you should definitely make sure you get good sounds and that can make a world of difference. Like I remember whenever I was first trying to do orchestral stuff, I was using, um, I think it was like stock logic sounds from you know, this is, it was like logic pro eight or something. I did a little while ago and uh, I was like, yeah, this is not really sounding great. And then I sprung for the, uh, the East West gold, um, bundle and, uh, yeah, like immediately, my orchestral music sounded like way better. Like it sounded like I was a better writer, and I wasn't. The sounds were better. And part of that is also the sounds. You know, you got a better sound. You, you're gonna it's gonna inspire you to to, to write in a way that you're. You know, so I, I think it's good to to definitely keep your sounds modern, and it, it's okay. But but just don't, um, yeah, just don't get into this like, uh, mode of just constantly buying new stuff to solve a problem. You know, if you have good sounds, you know, especially with plugins as far as like compressors and EQs and stuff like that, you really don't need to mess with that. Like, you can use the stock stuff. Learn how to, you know, learn how to, to get something sounding good with what you have before you start start adding adding on. Because you know, you can spend all the money you want if you don't know how to use this stuff. It's, it's, it's not going to matter. Like, there's 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 guys that um like I, my mixes and masters are sounding pretty good right now, but there are guys that with you know a fraction of what I have. You could could make a better mix in a master just because they they know you know they have more experience and they just know their, their tools better and, and that's I think what people should focus on for the most part. You know? But yeah, like if you've got a Casio keyboard, don't think that you know you're going to be able to make that kick drum on the Casio's keyboard sound like a real drum or sound like you know the most current hip hop kit. You know what I mean? Like there there is a line there. You know I'm, I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to say you know uh, build a plywood guitar and you know. <laughs> you know that, that that's gonna work. You know, I mean, like, although I have seen, I, I have heard of a guy that that did uh, a really good uh, guitar tech, I guess, and he built a piece of junk out of a piece, of, literally a sheet of plywood. But apparently, it plays amazing. So, <laughs> exceptions to every rule, I guess. Always exceptions to every rule. Um, I want to answer a couple of the questions that we got. I don't know. Did did you have a seventh? Um, a seventh habit. I, I looked at the list that you and I talked about yesterday, and I realized it was only six habits long. Uh, was oh, the uh, I've was got one seven network. Oh, okay. Yeah, let's networking. hear it. Yeah. Um, yeah. With, with networking, uh, let me think. How do I want to say? So networking is important, but I think sometimes people get a little too crazy with it. So I think it's it's important to um, yeah go to like a rally and you know mm -hmm. meet people. Um, or, you know, if you have a good local music scene, maybe go and, and, and meet people out there and, and kind of network. Um, uh, but just don't go, I, 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 I sometimes, I, I hate hearing the word network. It's like, it gets you so much. It just, uh, it's, it's like, because then it's like, are you really even networking or are you just, uh, you know, wasting time? <laughs> you know, like, that's why I sometimes, like, you know, uh, don't, don't get so... You know, people have that saying, um, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Well, I don't really agree with that. I think it's a little both. So mm -hmm. just find a balance there, you know. Definitely do your networking, but don't 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 be one of these people that um, you know, you're you're out at a music convention networking more than you are in the studio right. You know, but also don't be a person that just sits in your studio and, and never sends the music out, you know, never goes to any conventions. Um 
it's 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 it is important. Like there's there's been a lot of uh, gigs that I've gotten just from from networking, you know. And some of them, um, it's not necessarily like a uh, the next day kind of thing. Like there's there's been um, situations where like I've met somebody, um, and uh, you know we talked, we hung out, had a good time, and I knew them for like at least two years before I think I ever did any work for them. You know, and now I do a ton of work for them. Uh, so. That I definitely think is uh, something that successful people do. You know, you get out there and you, but but don't go, don't go overboard. Don't be the the chatty cathy networker. One of our all you do. One of our mutual friends told me years ago, probably like eight or nine years ago, uh, at the rally we were having a burger together. And he said, I see people that come here year after year and they're clearly building their network, but they don't bring anything to the network. And I said, what do you mean? He said, people want you to be a contributor. He said, it starts on the taxi forum when, when people who are new to the forum, if they want to become part of the family, part of the network, they should spend some time in peer-to-peer -peer listening to other people's music and giving comments. That way you develop a reputation as part of the family, part of the group, a team player, and people will start to get your note to get to know your musical personality and what you're strong at. If you consistently say the vocals would be better if you did this and you're right about that, then other people will go, oh, he's got a great ear for vocals. Now you're bringing something to the network and eventually that may result in you producing a vocal track or singing a vocal track. So if your goal is just, I'm gonna get a bunch of business cards and tell everybody how great my music is, it's a turnoff. It's like yeah. a, a, a sleazy, dorky guy going to a bar, walking up to every woman in the bar going, hey baby, new in town. I mean, it's yeah. cheap, yeah. it's cheesy. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I couldn't put it better. Um, and yeah, I think also with, with networking, uh, like. I'm not the best networker, by the way. Like I'm not a good salesman. Like so, I'm I'm maybe the last person to uh, take advice as far as networking goes. Like this is certainly my my weakest <laughs> of seven seven traits of successful people, whatever. But um, uh, I think one thing is that with with network with, with really everything, just like when we were talking about with the schedule, um, with networking, it's kind of it's got to be kind of like uh, what what fits you and your personality. I think sales are probably like that too. Like um. Like here we go. For example, we're talking about talking to, to girls in bars. All right, so let's see. My cousin, he kind of takes the marine approach, right? Just charge, you know, and he just talks to every girl <laughs> at the bar. And you know what? That works for him. It does work for him. I'm not that guy. Like that, I, it would never work for me. Like that is not the way. You know, I'm more of the sit back, like, oh, you know, she seems much. She might be interested in me. Let let me go feel it out or whatever. That kind of a thing. That works for me. You know, his his, his technique works for for him. So for me with networking, you know, I've always just approached it as, you know, I want to, to make friends with people um, because I, uh, there was a uh, quote I read on a, on a book, sometimes it was like a, like a Kinko's or something like that, right? And um, I can't remember who wrote it, where it came from, this is when I had a, my last day job. And uh, the quote was, um, all things being equal, people would rather work with their friends. All things being slightly unequal, people would still rather work with their friends. <laughs> and uh, and I thought about it. And, and so my approach isn't like, well, I want to be this person's friend so that they want to work with me. It's more like I don't want to work with somebody that I can't be friends with kind of thing in a way, like especially like at, at that time whenever 
um, like, you know, I was, I was like, I want to do music. That's what I want to do. Like, why would I want to put myself in a situation, even if I was doing music where it's something I'm not going to want to do. So I always kind of approached it as let me kind of make friends with people and uh, see if I want to hang out with them. And if, if we work together, then that's great. If not, then, hey, I've got a new friend. And that's kind of, that was my approach. Maybe that'll work for you, maybe not. But I, I think, uh, yeah, tailor to, don't try to, uh, like, be somebody that you're not when you're networking. Like, if you're not the, the, if you're not the Marine, like my cousin, you know, where you're just charged, then don't do that. But if you are and that worked, then do it, you know. Um, I don't think there's one, one right way to, to do it. You just kind of have to, know who you are and what your strengths and weaknesses are and just kind of go with that and, and let it be kind of, you know, uh, natural and, and organic, you know, and I, also like offer something, you know, see, see what can you offer like on just the more business side of it? Like what do you have to offer to them? You know, a lot of times people when they network, you're trying to figure out what this person can do for them. Like, right. you know, like what can this person do for me? Like, what can you do for them? If you can do something for them, like you'll get the gig. You know, but if it's all like kind of a one-way street there, like you're just trying to get something from them, then I don't think your networking is going to be very successful. I had a great technique for meeting young ladies when I was in college. Uh, a guy that I knew who was probably in his 40s had a husky puppy, and he was leaving town for a week and asked me if I would babysit his husky puppy, which was about four <laughs> months old. So one day I had to go to a class, uh, you know, and I drove over to campus and I took the dog with me. I never made it to the class because everywhere I went walking, you know, like on the pathway or the sidewalk to the class, I was getting bombarded with girls coming <laughs> up going, can I meet your dog? So for the whole rest of the week, I would just go park my car, get out of the car, find a tree, lean up against the tree and throw a ball. And I've never <laughs> met so many girls in my life. I didn't have to say a word. It's actually better that I didn't say a word. So my advice is... <laughs> Puppies, bring a puppy to the road rally. Meet collaborators. There you go. That actually probably would work. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here's a question from Dan Weber. What's the number one motivating factor in sync licensing that keeps you inspired to work as hard as you do? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I know there is one specific factor. It's, it's kind of, um, look, I mean, I like what I do. Uh, so yeah, there are times when I get something in and it's like, I've done it a million times and it's like, yeah, maybe that's hard to get inspired, but it's just like, that's kind of come to the territory. However, there's going to be, there's a lot of other things that come in where it's like, oh, this is different. And it's kind of like a, like a puzzle. So I guess maybe the, uh, with some of it anyways, it's kind of like, um, like kind of like the puzzle aspect, like kind of trying to figure out like how, how am I going to do this? How am I going to make this this work? Um, that's that's probably the, the number one. And then, uh, and then also, I guess uh, maybe this is another number one. It really kind of depends on the genre, to be honest. Like if it's like, so I, I really like writing, you know, uh, kind of more popular music genres. And so whenever I get a request in and it's, it's something in there, whether it's a rock song or a, a dance track or whatever, like I just like man, I want to make something catchy, and so just the that kind of like aha moment whenever you, you come up with a, a good progression or something catchy or something just works, that really is motivating to me just to kind of to kind of get to that point. Um, but if it's something like where it's like say attention cue, where it's really like it's for the scene, it's it's kind of more the puzzle aspect, trying to figure out all right, how am I going to 
uh, how am I going to make this work? How am I going to convey this uh, this emotion that they're they're trying to get me to convey? This because uh, sometimes I have the picture, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I just have a you know a reference track. Um, so yeah, I would say that. So it depends on the genre. Either just the coming up with something catchy, like that's that's my favorite thing in the world, is whenever I come up with a good song, like a good riff, good whatever. Like, it's like so that's motivating in and of itself. Um, and then if it's something that's not like a catchy music genre, you know, like a tension or a dramedy type of thing or whatever, it's catchy is not really the thing that they're going for, then it's more of just uh, like the puzzle aspect of kind of figuring out how to make it work. Andre Stepanian asked a question that I think you pretty much answered already, but I just want Andre to know that uh, I, I've got your question here. With an old Roland from the 80s, how'd you manage to get forwards and possibly deals with dated sounds, or you didn't until you upgraded your gear? And he already answered and said, yeah, he just learned how to use what he had well. Well, uh, also, the, I was using it as a uh, MIDI controller. So I had, I had sounds on, at that time, it was Reason. So I had, uh, you know, modern sounds but i was using that as um of course even though now those sounds are kind of back in in style all those 80s <laughs> right. since so so now like actually yeah like like that one's got some really great string and brass sounds that would work really well with today's pop music so um yeah that's that's really back then that that's that's what it was is it was i was using it as a, as a controller um i loved uh Oberheim and Prophet 5, and then along oh, came yeah. the Yamaha DX7, which was the most advanced synth out there, but just, I never heard a sound come out of a DX7. I mean, that I went, wow, that sounds beautiful. You know what I mean? It just didn't have any richness to it, but it was a, a, a bag of tools, let's say. All right, here's a great question from Stephen Bruce. Uh, Chuck Henry says, you understand the algorithm that ASCAP uses in processing payment to composers. Could you please explain the algorithm as well as what you know about the differences between ASCAP and BMI? This might be my favorite question. I, I had no idea. I, mean, I know you fairly well. I had no idea that you've uh, sussed out the algorithm. Is that is there truth in that statement? Wait, wait. Uh, you, you might have to repeat that because it's kind of garbled. So something about algorithms with ASCAP yeah, and BMI? Right. Do you understand? Chuck Henry says that you understand. Yeah, and this is from Stephen Bruce, who apparently knows Chuck Henry well enough that he was able to pry this out of him. Chuck Henry says you understand ASCAP's algorithm that they use to pay people. Um, can you explain the algorithm? The ASCAP or, algorithm? Yeah. Or was that so a how joke? They, how they figure out how to? That has to be a joke, because I don't even know if ASCAP understands ASCAP's algorithm, <laughs> to be I, I think that's a true statement for any of the PROs. It's like you would be better off trying to learn, like, you know, chaos theory or something, uh, or learn how to be a brain surgeon than you could ever figure out the algorithm. You're right. Yeah. Nobody knows it. Yeah, they, they both of them... Um, I feel like right now BMI might be a little bit more transparent with things than ASCAP, especially after this whole COVID thing uh, with the way they're doing their accountings and whatnot. But um, yeah, both of them have a little bit of a kind of like uh, Wizard of Oz, you know, pay no attention 
the man behind the curtain kind of thing. Like, you know, you don't like what, what is really going on here? <laughs> you know, like, well, how, how do you figure this out? You know, um, how do you track any of this stuff? Nobody really seems to know. Um, I can make some guesses. It seems like, you know, obviously uh, initial airings pay more than the reruns. You know, if you have more plays in a quarter, obviously it's going to pay more. Uh, certain networks pay more. Like, I, just, I don't think there's really any way to be able to figure it out because some of it comes down to, I think, the, the, the deals that they strike with the, uh, the individual networks and, you know, w what those are, which I don't know how public, you know, those numbers are. Um, and then from there, it's just like, yeah, then they got to figure out, like, what kind of advertising dollars are being brought in for this show at this time. And I have no idea. It's, it's yeah, way beyond. That's, that's above my pay grade. Way above my pay grade. I would love to know if there if even is an algorithm. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's that's a good question. Is there an al algorithm? I don't know. Yeah, I, don't know. I have a strange feeling that if we dive too deep into this, that we both may be looking over our shoulders for years to come. Some things are best yeah. left unexplained. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I might have already said too much. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Um, all right. Let's uh, take one more question from the chat room. God, we've only got nine minutes left. Maybe we can get two in. Um, all right. I'm scanning. Does anybody have a question? Please type the word question in all caps. Uh what genres did you grow up listening to and how easy is it to learn an unfamiliar genre? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I grew up listening to rock. Uh, when I was really young, um, yeah, I listened to all the, the 80s rock stuff. Um, Van Halen was my favorite band. Still my favorite band, actually. Um, and then, you know, in the 90s, you know, I, I listened to all the, you know, the grunge and alternative stuff. Um, Love Stone Total Pilots, uh, Nirvana, of course, you know, Rage Against the Machine. Um, so yeah, I was very much a rock guy, 100% um, rock guy. Uh, as far as learning other genres, um, uh, I think the longer you you do this and the the more genres you kind of tackle, the easier it becomes. So you just start to kind of notice patterns and you know, just certain things you. You just kind of pick up on quickly. It's it's more difficult at first. Um, like, uh, but the really, I mean, you just you kind of have to start listening to it. And I would say, break it down like as much as possible. Like, if say you wanted to learn how a an engine works, you know, like, I, well, I guess you could just go online and do that but let's say you really wanted to get you know hands-on with it you know you go in there and you take it apart and look at all the different parts see how you know what happens here and there blah, blah, blah. i think it's the same thing with the song like um you start with something as simple as like the kick drum like, what does the kick drum sound like in this genre like what makes it sound like that how can i make my kick drum sound like that and you move on to the snare and the hi-hat uh if there's guitars listen to that um if there's synths listen to the synths like what what is it that this synthesizer is doing, you know, like uh, what's the sound? Like, is it is it kind of dancing around or is it more like an impact type of sounding thing? And just really break it down like each, like track by track by track. Um, and, uh, and, and just 
keep at it and you'll get better and better. And the longer you do it, the, the quicker it'll come. Like, you know, at a certain point, you know, like when maybe when you first, when you say I'm learning your first new genre, that, who knows, that might take months or maybe even a year to really get it to sound good. But then the next genre, it won't take that long. And then after you've been doing it for 10 years, you'll be able to listen to a genre you haven't heard before and just instantly be able to, to figure it out because you'll, you'll, you'll know your way around synthesizers and amp plugins and uh, your compressors and your EQs. And you'll know, you know, where you should be looking, you know, to find a kick sound like that and how to make it cut through the mix the way it does in this particular genre or whatever. Um, so yeah, I would say at first it's kind of difficult, but uh, after a while it becomes Okay, uh, Greg Carosa wants to know how many tracks do you do in a year? Uh, I, I don't really keep track, but um, I would say I'd, I stick to the probably the 100 to 150 range, maybe as many as 200. Like the, the most I think I've ever done in a year is around 300, and that kind of feels like too much. Like I, I kind of got a little burnout that year um, when, I, when I was pushing the, the 300 range. So yeah, I, I like to, to stick to the, yeah, like 10 a month type of things, like 120, 150, something like that. Um, Matthew Vander Bogey has a question. How do you get that hairstyle? <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> Just for anybody who's watching, who's, who's not part of the club, uh, <laughs> Vander Bogey's a close friend of his. <laughs> Yeah, just uh, yeah, patience, man, patience. Throw it out. <laughs> yeah. um, Eat lots of oatmeal. What's your favorite drum plugin? Favorite drum plugin? Yeah. Uh, for like, um, like acoustic drums, like like real sounding drums. Yeah, yeah I guess. Yeah. What are your favorite? What's your favorite drum? Okay, so um, I have I have two. Um, all right, so if I'm doing like modern rock or like say modern country, something like that. Um, Steven Slate is generally my go-to. Uh, that one to me has the most kind of like crisp and modern sounding drums. Um, but uh, for I, I feel like, and some people disagree with me on this, but I feel like Steven Slate's a little bit of a one-trick pony. Like the one thing it does, it does the best. Um, but if say I wanted to do a like vintage funk track, I wouldn't sound like it came out in the 1970s. 1960s. I haven't really heard anything out of Steven Slate that really does that well, like at least out of the box. I mean, maybe there's some production tricks you can do, but for that kind of stuff, or like say indie rock, um, I'm more of a fan of addictive drums. Uh, mm. I think that they have they have a a um, more diverse palette of drum sounds. Um, so yeah, if I'm doing like an indie track or something retro, I'll it will always be addictive drums that I pull up. Um, but if I'm doing something like if somebody wants like a really like a hard rock track or a modern country track, then I'll pull up Steven Slate. Like it's just got that like that like CLA kind of drum sound, like that is really polished, slickly produced drum sound. Um, I had really no idea. Uh, and I'm so glad you mentioned that because Deb and I have been doing some spring cleaning and, th and we've just got tons of books bookshelves everywhere in the house loaded with books and while i was cleaning out one of the bookshelves i saw a, a box of stephen slate drums that he'd given me probably like seven or eight years ago so uh i'm gonna have to install that in logic now and then maybe do an update and 
Yeah, good to know. Yeah. I had no idea. They, they still sound good. Yeah, yeah. Stephen Slate, yeah, great drum sounds. Uh, he's a drummer, so makes perfect he is, sense. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and talk about a hairstyle. I've never seen his hair. Yeah, he, tons <laughs> of hair gel. <laughs> yes, he does. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, we're we got like two minutes left. Um, I'm trying to scan just if I can see a really quick one to answer. Um, and also, by the way, I also want to say uh, that with the Stephen Slate stuff, my my info on that might be outdated. Maybe there's there's been an update to the Stephen Slate drums where they have more sounds, where like they have better retro sounding stuff. Um, I haven't updated in a while, so this is this could be old info. Right. Um, I don't know. So that 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 I, yeah, check it out. But for sure, uh, you know the the modern rock stuff. I, I, that I don't think has changed anything. It's still excellent. Where's the best place? People, several people have asked, where can they go listen to your music? Um, where's your like most updated playlist? I don't know. I, actually, I don't update any of my. I don't. I, I, I know. I, I don't. Put it. <laughs> the reason I asked it that way is I was looking yesterday afternoon and I went, I don't think he's put anything new on here in about four years. Uh, more like ten. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, I was, my I was being kind. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's been, yeah. Like when I had the website made, which is around 10 years ago now, I had some music. And actually, most of that, a lot of that music wasn't even supposed to be up there for that long. It was like some of it's just like I just had it there just because I wanted a genre that I was going to fill out later. So I was like, all right, here's a couple tracks, put that up there, and I'll, I'll give you some stuff. And I just never did it. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, because uh, I've actually thought about taking my website down because there's not really any point for me to have it, to be honest. Um, so yeah, I don't know, actually, I don't really post, uh, music up anywhere. Like I, I kind of write it and I send it off and then that's kind of that. So what you're saying there, Steve, is you write, submit, forget, and repeat. Forget. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I do. That's exactly what I do. I instantaneously forget about it. Gone. Well... I've got to say, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, I appreciated uh, the fact that we got to hang out for an hour yesterday. Um, oh, yeah, and that was fun. It was. And, and just once again, man, I'm so proud of you from that. You know, I, I will never, as long as I live, forget that moment where I saw you standing up in front of that giant light with the video camera on. And <laughs> I could, I, I literally could tell everything I needed to know about you as a person inside of a minute or two. And here we are 12, 15 years later, and you are exactly that guy <laughs> that I thought. So you are what you are. There's no pretense in you whatsoever. And uh, I will always be grateful that you sent me that letter and acknowledge that Taxi was your launching pad. And uh, I think that everybody who watches this show today uh, will be inspired by you, and now you're paying it back as you're their launching pad. So thank you for joining us, and continued good luck. And uh, when Deb and I make it to Florida sometime late spring or early summer, if we're anywhere near you, I will give you a call, and uh, let's go out and grab dinner together, all right? Yeah, yeah, hit me up, I'll... I'll be here. <laughs> All right. Great to see. You. Well, yes and no. <laughs> That's yeah, a whole yeah, other yeah, yeah, yes and no, yeah. <laughs> yes and no. Spring, probably, yeah. Probably still yeah. be time. All right, man. Yeah. Great to see you. Thank you for doing this, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Stephen Barrett. Bye-bye. See you later.